welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. It's what I do, you know, in my day-to-day, but to kind of like zoom out a little bit and remember, um, even just remembering the times on the inpatient side with the the end-of-life care and and what those moments are like. And uh, as I'm like watching my kids ride their scooters outside and all the, just kind of the chaos of being mom and wife and working and trying to homeschool for the last couple of years. And, um, but like zooming out and remembering like, what were those conversations around the deathbed? What were the important things? We're on that conveyor belt. What are the conversations gonna be at the end? Um, what does presence look like and full attention. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation where we pick up right where we left off and jump straight in. Enjoy the episode. Can I ask, Layla, um, do you find that with seeing patients so often, the same patients, you know, kind of daily, um, do you get closer to patients than you did in other aspects of healthcare? Um, even you know, and along with that is like, because they're, a lot of them are in this terminal stage, is it, is there a desire to kind of keep them at arm's length so you don't get too attached or mm-hmm. how does that work for you? Yeah, good question. I, um, it's interesting. It, so it's different, um, on the inpatient side, I would spend all day with somebody. So 12 and a half hours and sometimes three days a week, sometimes back to back to back. And so you really do get close, um, to a person when you spend that amount of time with them. And my job was to really get to know like what is kind of the baseline? When are they starting to turn? What happened to their demeanor today? They're really down and they weren't this way yesterday. What happened overnight? Are you not feeling right? What's with your labs? You know, um, and it's and and it varies too if it's a if it's a pneumonia patient for example not to minimize how much pneumonia sucks because it really does um but for the most part somebody will be diagnosed with pneumonia and they come in and they get treated and we give them antibiotics and maybe some supplemental oxygen and a little physical therapy and some breathing treatments and and they're on their way but when it's a um a cancer diagnosis it's it's a it's a really different season, you know, and it's, uh, I've always said it's such an honor to walk alongside somebody um, during that season because it's a chapter in their life that will definitely be bookmarked, you know, as a real turning point for most. Um, so yeah, on the, when I see patients every day, I, um, I really enjoy getting to know them. Um, I think it changes my nursing care when I see them as like, the mom, you know, their mother or, a, you know, a husband or a daughter, a sister. Um, and I love knowing their stories. I've cried with patients about things that have nothing to do with their diagnosis or treatment, you know. Um, and it's, uh, I, I find a lot of value in getting to know them and, um, and be close to them in that way. I've gone to funerals of patients. I've sent cards to patients who's lost their husbands. You know, um, I think that's, uh, it's really such a cool opportunity to be, um, just a little, uh, you know, bringing little bits of kingdom here in kind of a dark season for a lot of people. Leila, I, I'm an Enneagram type three. So by the way, Heather, do you know your Enneagram type? I'm a nine. Ah, 
Okay. Peacemaker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as a three, the future always has to be hopeful for me to want to get out of bed. Mm. <laughs> Gotta quickly slide into like the negative side of a nine, which is a little bit mopey and manipulative when I, when I don't have a bright future in front of me. So can you talk a little bit about that internal fortitude that I clearly don't have, um, <laughs> that you very clearly do have that lets you thrive in this incredibly hopeful life as you walk people through their death journey, um, to, to their deathbed? Yeah. You know, I, um, it's certainly been a journey because I started, I was a nurse. I think I started, what was I, 22 maybe? And I remember the first time, so I was inpatient nursing and I had a gentleman who was at the end of his life and he ended up dying on my shift and his family wasn't with him. And I remember I like, I had to take a moment because I remember just kind of being really self-reflective and thinking, I have to call this man's daughter. She's older than me. I was his nurse. And like, I have to tell her that her dad just died. And who am I to do that? You mm. know? And, yeah. um, and I remember sitting with him and it, it's, uh, I just remember sitting with him and like wanting to honor him and, um, and like just do it with great care and mm. like let her know. And I just really wanted to make sure that she knew I cared genuinely, mm. you know, about her dad and that he was comfortable. And, um, and, I, over the years, um, you know, because death is, uh, it's, especially in our culture, it's a very difficult thing to face. We don't like to do it. Um, and I, I know that, um, after being with a lot, I mean, I've seen a lot of people die and, um, it, it, at some point occurred to me that this process is really just as much, you know, dying is as much a part of life as living is. Like we're all going to, that's all of our stories soon. And I remember I, I just became like, I've just been so acquainted with my own mortality as I've watched other people like cross that line. Um, and I've, I've pictured myself in that position. Um, and it's, and it is, <laughs> Jared also is a type three, my husband. And so it's, um, you know, he's very, also like needs a bright future and like what are my goals and all these things and I'm like I I'm okay like I don't have goals <laughs> and I don't mean it in like uh like I'm just depressed and kind of moping along but I I'm okay not I don't know um I've just I don't know I picture my I, I'm just so aware of my mortality and I'm okay it's I've seen the deathbed talks you know I've heard mm. them and it's never like oh I didn't accomplish that one goal you know mm. those aren't the things we're talking about at the end of life I don't know it's a it's I think it's just so valuable I'm just so grateful for for the job I do um but it's it doesn't depress me though mm. too I get asked that a lot like don't you get depressed just walking alongside people that are sick or dying and um and it really doesn't because that's our journey too and I might mm. not feel unwell today but I'm I'm on that exact same path and I don't know when my turn in line is but um mm. but I just always recognize that I'm on that path I like that a lot and I um so when my dad passed away last year 
from pancreatic cancer. Um, the hospice nurses were just such a comfort to our family. Mm-hmm. Um, they were so sweet and so insightful mm-hmm. and just, um, we just so appreciated them. So I'm sure that the families that you work with also appreciate you and all that you do to try and, um, help them navigate that difficult time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, thank you so much. It's we have to remember as nurses, like we do it a lot. We do it every day. We see the same thing, but for families, it's new, and it you know, oftentimes it's new and it's scary. And I, I always, um, I did see a lot of comfort come when like you just make it less scary. Like here's what you can expect. Here's why this is happening, and just um, just taking the scary away from it. You know, yeah. Yeah, that was definitely helpful in our case. And just knowing like, okay, so these are the stages that people typically go through this, you might see some of this go on, don't be Mm -hmm. worried, you know, like, yeah, that was very helpful. Yeah. Hmm. Layla, what does it look like to honor a human soul? (laughs) Uh, Man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I suppose if you, if I could ask every patient, I wonder if they might have a different answer for what that would mean for them. Um, I know, I know when I've sat with um, somebody who is exiting, um, you know, this earthly life. I, I often it's really surreal. I think to think about um, that changeover and you know, whereas like five minutes ago, you were here, you were a human on earth and now you're motionless. And I think, but their soul, like what happened in that second is something is happening, even though I'm in a completely still and quiet room, you know, it was just so surreal to think about. And I, I think, um, I guess to answer your question directly, I, for me, honoring just what would I want, you know, and there's just um, a lot to say about like maintaining someone's integrity, even at the end of their life. Are they going to complain about something? No, they're not going to complain. They can't. But it's still my, it's just my duty, you know, to honor their humanity um, while they have it. And uh, I mean, to the very last moment and beyond um, is it was important to me. I mean, do they look okay? Do they look comfortable? How's their breathing? It's a little bit too fast. What can I do? You know, um, just that, even though they, they can't put their call light on like the person next door to them and, and be, you know, I mean, you have some, it's hard. You have the one patient who's like just this very surreal moment. These are the last moments on earth. And then the person next door to them, they have no idea, but they're putting their call light on every seven minutes because they can't reach the Kleenex box. And could you hand me the remote? And, Hey, my eyes melted. Could you get me more? And, uh, you know, trying to balance those two things, but just, um, still to not being flustered, but like really just being in the moment with that person, um, in those last moments. I'm telling you, nurses have the hardest job. I would never <laughs> want your job. I could not do it. <laughs> Uh, I love it. I really do. I just, I know when, you know, Caben asked what, if we could clone ourselves, what would we do? I'm like, I don't know that I would do anything else but be a nurse. I just cannot fathom. I can't think of another thing. And that, that in itself is a beautiful indicator of finding your vocation, that yeah. mm-hmm. God seed inside of you, a vocation. Mm. You know, as you're talking, I'm just sitting here wondering if 
and, and I'm saying this as a statement looking for your guys's input and challenge to it. I wonder if, you know, Layla, earlier you said that death is a difficult thing for us to talk about in our country. We just don't like doing it. We don't like facing death. And you remind me earlier to our conversation about this idea of chronic distraction. And, you know, in the silence, hmm, I just wonder if silence is its own form of little death of, of the ego. It's a, it's a little death of that surface us as we begin to float into deeper waters of our underselves, of our true selves, of our inner world, of our interior life. And I'm just going to ramble a little bit more here. I, I feel like that interior world stretches out an arm to that other world that exists beyond the veil. The world where God and spirit and creation come from and where our souls maybe also come from and go to or live in or connect to. I'm not quite sure, but I wonder if there's some linkage between that little moment that says, ah, I got to pick up my phone at the stoplight and that much larger kind of epic moment of passing from life into death. And, and I, I wonder if that surface self of us that just loves distraction and busyness and accomplishment and goals and resumes. I wonder if that self senses that silence is its own little death and death is its great bridge to this other world. I don't know. What, what do you guys, what do you guys think? Am I just t totally off the rails on this? <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think I hear what you're saying. I think, um, silence is uncomfortable. There's just a lot of truth that's revealed in quiet. And, um, and maybe there is something inside of us that's like, ah, <laughs> when it gets quiet, it feels a little, um, I don't know. And maybe it could even be the opposite. Like it's like appealing back of, or maybe there's like, I don't know. No, I'll have to think more about it. I'm a type five. I have to think before I speak. Let me think more. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you again in a week. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but, but as, and as you were talking about what it means to honor a human soul, you just talked about sitting with them often in silence. And I had this image, you did this beautiful job painting this image of you sitting with someone and just on the other side of the curtain is someone else in pain, right? But demanding these very immediate things, right? This busyness of like, I, yeah. I need someone to open my applesauce. I need the remote yeah. change. I need someone to whatever it is. And there's this dichotomy that sets up that when we are sitting in the death space, we naturally, our, our physical human bodies and the soul inside those bodies naturally calms and mm. stills and just mm. waits. And the process, what I'm hearing from you, because I, I haven't actually done it. I haven't actually walked with someone up to their deathbed and through that journey to the other side. And but so as I'm listening to you talk about it, there is this sense that just the weightiness of death and its honor as a part of our life demands, like not in a cruel way, but in just this compelling way, commands silence. Yeah. Those two things are somehow connected. 
it reminds me of um, when I first started nursing um, and I was, I think I must have still been precepting. So I had another more seasoned nurse training me, you know, on the job. And, um, and we had a woman, I remember the room she was in. I remember her family. Um, she was dying and, um, and her family had come. I think it was her daughter who was probably uh, maybe 35 or 40 years old. Um, she had come and um, I was at the nurse's station with my preceptor and we just hear this wailing and shouting and no, you know, just panic. And so, you know, we all, of course, bolt in there because is this a code or, you know, what's happening? But it was um, that she had realized, the daughter had realized her mom was like, she was kind of like, we call it, you know, agonal breathing. She was at the end and um and the daughter was not ready for that and um so she was she was panicking she was shouting mama no mama no and and i kind of was like just my eyes are bugging out like heartbroken and um and i'll never forget that my preceptor she's awesome she she wa- she was so calm and she walked over to the daughter and she pulled up a chair and she pulled up another chair and she sat down next to the patient and the nurse did. And she kind of just, I mean, even without words, she just guided the daughter to sit and the nurse took the mama's hand and just stroked it. And she put mom's hand in her daughter's hand and said, be here, be here with your mom. And um, she was just, her voice was soft and it was like bringing the the panic down and the daughter calmed and she was able to spend those last moments not panicked and and distraught but like really present and quiet with her mom as she died and it was so beautiful um and it it really did just command this silence you know and it um it was really beautiful i think our our cult, we're trained to like panic when you know end of life is a scary thing and um and she just made it such a treasured, I'm sure that daughter won't forget. I know I, I have not forgotten this 13 years later. And um, it was really a guide for me moving forward when I, when I was on my own and, um, and walking other family members through the death of their, their loved one. I was, um, I'll never forget that just, just bringing it, just being present, being quiet, being with them. She still, she would say, she's still here. Be with your mom. She's still here. And just held her hand and stroked her hand. It was just so, so beautiful. I really love that. And I love how, you know, I think that there is, there can be such a beauty to those moments. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it's kind of, it feels a little awkward to describe that as beautiful, but it really is, you know, Mm -hmm. there's something just kind of pure about that moment. Mm -hmm. And I know, um, in our situation with my dad, like he had prepared us, I think probably as well as anyone can, um, for his, for his death. And, um, it was, uh, at down at the hospice place that he was at, we, um, there were people from his church who were on the worship team that had been planning to come out to the house and play music for him, um, on that particular day. And so they just came down to the hospice center instead. Hmm. and they set up a keyboard and the nurses told us to leave the door open and be as loud as we wanted. (laughs) And so we all just kind of gathered around and sang worship songs and it was 
mm. a really, really beautiful moment mm. and like a just a very peaceful way to spend your last your last moments. Mm. And um you know, I I cherish that mm. and hold on to that and think back with um, you know, gratitude and with peace rather than like overwhelming sorrow, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I've seen a lot of that this the singing and 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 it does it sounds strange but to say it was a beautiful death and i want that to be the normal like i want that to be everybody's story you get one chance to die and it should be beautiful you know i know it can't always be but boy man as long as i have a chance to make a difference that's my hope and it really just gives a lot of weight to what scripture says about death too that i mean almost that death isn't a loss you know, when it says like, where, oh, death is your victory, where, oh, death is your sting. And I probably said that to myself almost every death that I sat in, you know, in those very, what could be eerily silent moments after someone takes their last breath and they're just still. And I, and almost with a smirk, it's like death is swallowed up in victory. Like this body is dead there's no breathing it's silent and it's motionless but but death there's no victory even even as it's claimed this body like the, like you said like that moment after what happened their soul is still going you know death doesn't win As you guys are describing these experiences, it makes me think that th this is kind of tying in different thoughts that I've had in agriculture and other things in life. But there's this idea that like two great things are asked of us to be present and to give our attention fully. Our kids ask us of that. Our spouses ask us that other things we care about, our jobs try to, social media tries to, right? But there, there's this idea, like, as I'm a farmer, I don't grow walnuts, even though walnuts is my livelihood, right? Selling walnuts are my livelihood. But I don't, I have, no, there's not a single farmer in the whole world who has grown any fruit or produce. The plants and the trees do that. The farmer's job is to provide the environment of flourishing, of rich nutrients, of water, of pruning. And then the tree is the one that grows the fruit. And so I think about like, what is my job farmer? What am I doing here? And it comes back to this idea of presence and attention. Um, that my job is to be present to the trees and to give them my attention. And I think of technology as technology seems to be something that only wants our attention, right? Kind of by nature, technology can't have our presence, right? Like we can be giving each other our attention right now in this podcast, but because we're distanced all over the country, we can't be present, right? We physically cannot be present, but we can give each other our attention. And yet nature and relationships and what we're talking about here with death these things that are meaningful, these things that we can look at and say, ah, that's beauty. That is beautiful. Whether it's a sunset or a mountain or a good harvest or a good hug or whatever it is, we look at and say, oh, that's beautiful. I think, I wonder, 
if things that we call beautiful in a soulful way, not, not in any other way, but in a way that's full of our soul, are things that have demanded and commanded our attention and our presence for some amount of time. Tell me more examples. Um, well, these last two years, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a soul and a body in a place at a time. What it means to pay attention to the dirt under my feet and the fact that below this wood and concrete and gravel that I'm sitting on top of in this chair, that beneath all of that, there are worms and nutrients and microbes and life. And that from that earth comes this computer that I'm speaking into on this mic. And from the earth comes the data cloud that's transferring it from my computer to yours. And we have conditioned ourselves so perfectly to be both unpresent and unattentive to the earth, which gives us all of these things. And so for me, part of my journey back to myself has been a journey of presence and attention. Um, so part of that is in those moments of silence that are so terrifying, it's because we don't actually want to be present to ourselves. Mm. And when we are present to ourselves, then we begin to pay attention to things that are inside of ourselves that conflict with mental models we've built about the world around us. We have to deal with our own complicitness and brokenness. We have to deal with our own inability to live up to the vision of ourselves that we've carried since childhood. We come to terms with the fact that we made promises to ourselves from the age we were three or five or seven about what our life and world would look like that are just completely unrealized, probably as a good thing, but it's still a hard thing to face those broken promises. So when we, so this, this idea of like presence and attention to myself, then to my world, my family, the earth under my feet. And then of course, now with the social uprising happening with the daytime murder of George Floyd and others, what does it mean to be present to my history as a straight white male? What does it mean to give my attention to that history? in a way that can provide some kind of soulful connection. Cause I, I, I just wonder if that's like, is that the gate code that unlocks the, the gate on the bridge that connects our ego to our id, our conscious self to our subconscious self, our false self to our true self, that this idea that if we can just be present and pay attention, then we get access to this whole other world, this world where God lives and breathes into our mm -hmm. world, all of creation. And we can actually just in that moment of presence and attention, we can have the courage and the peace and the joy to walk with someone up to that veil mm -hmm. and smile as they walk through it. Boy, how do you get there? So where, where does God fit into the mix of all of that as you're processing these, these things, just out of curiosity, but flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to make this podcast all about me, but yeah, let's, let's go there a little bit because I think God is in all of it. 
I wonder sometimes when people say that they have a deep and intimate relationship with God and they haven't learned how to be present and give attention to. I think it's possible to be very religious and I think it's very possible to be very dogmatic, but to actually commune with the divine, to commune with Yahweh, the God of the universe, the one and only, the creator, I think, I think requires our presence. Um, and I think we've developed a lot of tools that kind of let us shortcut some things or kind of wiggle in, into those moments without really having to embody them. So we can have kind of the, the typical summer camp mountaintop moment. And then we wonder why it fades away so quickly. Well, it's because we were kind of injected with the juice of presence and attention for a little bit, mm. but not taught the skills of how to actually carry that into our body and into our lives. And so pretty quick, we pronate back to other ways of moving in the world. Um, so to me, God's, God's right up in the mix of it. I, I, yeah, for me, it'd be hard to embody presence and intention without coming face to face with, um, with, with God. It's so hard to do. Uh, I think our, and maybe it's not, maybe it goes back to our earlier discussion about like, do we really need to demonize social media and, and technology, or is it really something that we have to do, you know, the work within ourselves? Why do I keep reaching for my phone? But I, um, I do find it hard because there's a lot of, there are a lot of other things I do instead of, um, being present with God. Like I can, I can sometimes give my attention to like on my commute, I, I go through the Bible in a year through the Bible on audio. And so like Heather, like I, I have it, read it to me while I drive mm -hmm. and I'm able to hear and I give my attention, but you're right, Caven, it's different than like being fully present with like in the presence of God. And, um, I remember in what, as you were speaking, Caven, it made me really sad to think, I was trying to think of the moments that I've genuinely felt like present and attention, you know, like that presence and attention at the same time. And um, one of the times, though, I was in the middle of some place nowhere, um, India, and I was exhausted. I was physically and emotionally so exhausted. I was on a you know, short-term mission. We had run a medical clinic and a dental clinic, but I kind of like walked away and I was walking through this path and I, I could even cry thinking about it now, but I remember like so vividly sensing, like just being open to the idea that God is walking with me right now. And I like in my bones knew it. And I was just like, saw my surroundings so differently, even just for those moments and, um, man, what a bummer that like that I can just remember like the very few times in my life that that's happened, but you're right. He's like, he's not changed. He's not left. It's like our inability to like be still and be quiet and be fully present and giving our attention fully. Like why I, I guess I shouldn't say we all speak for myself, but I have such a hard time. I want to think I'm good at it. I'm good at being quiet. I'm not a, I'm, I'm good at being quiet. Um, 
but goodness, it has been very few times that maybe I've really been fully present. I can definitely get on board with the um, the idea of when we come face to face with God and are fully present and giving it our full attention, um, giving him our full attention, uh, that can take us to a different level of beauty with him. Um, the idea of when we give ourselves, like me sitting with me and giving myself, and then that's where I end up, you know, um, finding, finding this hope and these, and this beauty and those things. Like, I'm not so sure that that's what you were saying, but, uh, that's one that I, that I definitely wouldn't agree with, but the idea of being attentive with God, because for me, I've found in my experience, um, anytime where I focus on me, myself, my thoughts, my past, my, you know, all of those things, uh, separate from God and analyze it separate from, from the impact God has in my life and what he's done for me. It never leads me to anywhere good or any place of growth or any place of joy. Um, and so I would say that having, like, that God is the key piece involved there for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think I think there's just so much permission to have so many different kinds of experiences with that. Um. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about God and and his grace toward us is that he's super comfortable with us meeting with him in different ways. He's, he's, he's much more comfortable with us meeting with him in different ways than we are with meeting with him in different ways. True story. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, it's, it's something that I just feel like we as capitalists and consumers are just so good at doing is this idea that like, if a little bit of if a little bit of it is good, then a lot of it must be better, right? So if <laughs> if a little bit of these moments of genuine presence and full attention are good, then I need every mode of my life to be like that. And if I'm not, then somehow like I haven't quite clicked in the formula or the gears are out of line, or if I just tweak my diet a little bit more, like then I'll then I'll get there. And like I just I mean, I, I just don't see that as being a reasonable thing to hold ourselves to. Um yeah, agreed. That's exhausting yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. <laughs> do that. that. But that that there's this freedom to hold this knowledge that like well, th- there might be something potently human in these rare experiences of genuine presence and full attention. And one of the reasons why I was excited to hear your guys' story on this podcast is because it seems to me that death is one of those moments that really clears the weeds and puts a spotlight on what it means to be present and attentive for a specific thing at a specific time. And that thing being a soul and a body walking up to that thin veil between worlds and then passing through. Mm. And it it just seems to be one of those things that even in our culture that's so consumed with busyness and facade and surface ego that somehow 
we understand that that's true about death, which is one of the reasons why we don't like talking about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. I think that's true. I think death is like one of those things where everything else kind of stops and ceases to matter. You know, when you find out your loved one is dying or like in that active dying stage, like everything else just kind of fades to the background. And that is the only important thing in that moment, you know. So I have a story for you. Um, So my dad actually lived for like four years past diagnosis, which is pretty rare for pancreatic cancer. Yeah. So, um, and at one point in time, he was even kind of deemed cancer-free. And I remember when I heard cancer-free, I thought cancer-free means cancer-free, no more cancer, the end, you know? Um, And I remember him telling me that there was like a 92% chance of it coming back. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, well, that's depressing. He looked at me and he goes, why is that depressing? I said, well, because 92 is kind of a big number, Dad. (laughs) And he looked at me and he goes, Heather, I have a 100% chance of dying. (laughs) So do you. I'm not going to be here a minute longer than I'm supposed to be. And I'm not going to be here a minute less than I'm supposed to be. And it was like, his perspective was just so clear, like, and it, it was like this, that just hit me like a ton of bricks, like, oh, he's right. I, I do have a hundred percent chance that he does have a hundred percent, huh? you know, and it just kind of, um, completely shifted my mindset, um, towards death because, you know, the truth is we're not guaranteed the next breath. We're just not. And, you know, he said, why should I let a little more information about how I might die be depressing. Why should I let that consume me? Mm-hmm. You know, and he's, he was very wise. Yeah. We're all on that conveyor belt toward, toward the end, every one of us. And we don't know how long our belt is. Like, where's the drop off? We don't know. And not that I'm like wanting to hasten it by any means, but I, I just will say for me, I am, I live in great anticipation of that day. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, just reading the word and the hope that God has given me through that. And like, I just, I'm really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Weird as that may sound. Well, like knowing, like you said, death isn't a loss. You right. know, it's not exactly. a loss. And like, yeah, just the weight, the weight that that understanding gives to the scriptures, you know, when we say like death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? You're swallowed up, you know. And like, and in in Revelation, when when he's describing like almost like this vision of of what that is like, and he said, <laughs> just so simple, but behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What I mean, what more? That's so cool. That's so beautiful. It's not a loss. I love that. And I feel like, um, you know, until that day comes, my my purpose in this life is to endure whatever it is that comes, um, you know, taking the good and the bad and just continuing to do what it says, you know, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God until whatever day he calls me home. Mm-hmm. 
do you feel like you have to enjoy it? I wonder, um, like the suffering, um, or even like Mary Oliver said, like she was given a box full of darkness and she didn't say, so I, you know, I didn't, she didn't have to view it as a box full of joy. I did, you know, it, it really was a box full of darkness, but even that is a gift, you know, or like Job's suffering, he suffered, you know, I don't know that. I wonder if he would say he enjoyed it. I doubt it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know for me, like, I don't enjoy this. Um, You know, like, I can't say that I do. That would be lying. Um, But I will say in the midst of that, um, you know, he does give peace and strength to endure. And those things I am grateful for and find joy in, Um, you know, and I, I don't know why you know, God chose to, for this path to be my life. Um, you know, I don't know what he holds for my future or if healing in this life is something that I'll see. Um, but I do know that I would have been a really, really good Martha and, um, you know, just the story with Mary and Martha where Martha's more concerned with everything going on around her, making sure that all the physical needs are met, whereas Mary's just kind of sitting at Jesus's feet and just soaking him in. And I know that I would have been a really great Martha. And yet God only gave me the physical capacity and ability to be a Mary. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's just one of those things where uh, that's just one of the small pieces that I've been able to pull out of it. I know my own tendency and I would have been very much accomplishments based in my mindset. Um, but you know, when you're chronically ill, you you really, that changes because, you know, if, if I were to measure myself by my accomplishments, as far as what the world usually sees as accomplishments, that would just be depressing, (laughs) you know, but, um, but when I just view myself in light of who he is and, everything changes, you know. As we kind of come up for breath and land the plane a little bit, is there anything that hasn't been said yet that you guys want to bring into the space? I think it's all been so helpful um, for me to kind of like, even though I, it's what I do, you know, in my day to day, but to kind of like zoom out a little bit and remember um, even just remembering the times on the inpatient side with the, the end of life care and, and what those moments are like. And, uh, as I'm like watching my kids ride their scooters outside and all the, just kind of the chaos of being mom and wife and working and trying to homeschool for the last couple of years. And, um, but like zooming out and remembering, like, what were those conversations around the deathbed? What were the important things? Um, and I think if we just all can envision ourselves, not in like a dark and sad way, but like envision ourselves in those moments and live in that way in light of we're on that conveyor belt. What are the conversations going to be at the end? Um, what does presence look like and full attention, um, and the beauty in that. Hmm. It's been good. 
And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. It can be very off-putting at the beginning to say, hey, I represent parents who are being accused of abuse and neglect. And the thing that I always want to explain to people is like, my clients are certainly not perfect people. They're parents who have most of the time messed up in one way or another, but they absolutely love their children. You know what, the hope of the system is that it ends with this generation. That if you have a kid who is being taken from a home in which there's you know, a lot of substance use because that parent grew up in a home where there was a lot of substance use, that moving forward, that this would be the last generation where you have a child growing up in a home where there's extensive substance use or extensive domestic violence or mental health issues, right? That's hard. <laughs> like you're working against a lot of history and a lot of intergenerational trauma and a lot of systemic racism and systemic classism. A lot of times it doesn't work, right? But that's the goal that we're striving towards is to break those cycles and to really help families come back together. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.